to give glory to you and to offer ourselves to you. We know you're present with us. Give us an openness, a sensitivity to your spirit here. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. like to invite the ushers forward, please, to receive our morning tithes and offerings.
worship the Lord and we connect with each other and we spend time praying together as well. And during the season of Lent this year, we're going to uh, set aside a little bit of time each week for some silence. I think that uh, sometimes in the noise and busyness of our world, it, we, we miss the value of silence. And so as we, uh, as we pray together today, we're going to begin with uh, 60 seconds or so of silence. And to give us a chance just to listen to God, to, to uh, contemplate uh, who God is and what he may be saying to us, to quiet our hearts. As we pray together, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we thank you for your presence here. As we join our hearts in prayer, we take these moments of silence to allow our hearts to be focused on you, our minds, and to give us an opportunity to hear you as you speak to us. Father, we come today because we recognize that life is a challenge for us sometimes. We know that in the midst of the challenges, you are the answer, the source, the fullness of all that we need. Father, we come today because we believe that you are good and merciful And because we know that you are the almighty and sovereign God. And so we come to declare our trust in you. And that we know you hear us when we pray. Father, this morning, there are all kinds of burdens that we bring with us today. Some of us are grieving. Feeling overwhelmed by the sense of loss. We pray that you will comfort our hearts. Father, we come today with concerns of health. We pray especially today for Rich Reynolds, Calvin and Laurel Buecher, for Warren Woolsey and Bill Getty, for Phil Muker and Mike Raybuck and Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, for Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our minds today. We pray for your healing grace upon each one. May they know your sustaining presence every moment. Father, we pray for the ministries of this church, and we thank you for all the ways in which, as the church, we minister to each other and we minister to others. This morning, we pray especially for the nominating committee that is in the process of putting together our ballot of leaders for next year. Give wisdom and insight and understanding as this group seeks your guidance. 
We pray, Father, for the churches around us. And we think today of the Belfast Free Methodist Church. And Pastor Mackmer. We thank you for their ministry and for the outreach of this church. And we pray that it will continue to be a place of hope and life. We pray your blessing upon them. And Father, we pray for our world. We think especially of Don Little, who is even now in North Africa. We pray that you will bless his ministry, that his, his work there would be encouraging to, uh, to those who are there to share the gospel to the church. We pray that you will, you will help him to know the right things to say and the right way to say them. And that through his ministry, there will be amazing things that happen. We ask for your grace upon him. Father, we pray for uh, our brothers and sisters who face great persecution. And we're thinking about the ministry of Wycliffe and the Bible translations among uh, people groups that are highly persecuted and the threats are real. And we ask, Father, that you would, you would surround the translation teams with protection. And we pray, Father, that, that you would allow your word to come to fruition that the people of these nations will have it in their own language so that it can be clearer to them, that they will know who you are and all that you've done for them in Christ. We pray for great transformation to take place in the midst of difficult circumstances. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers today. We thank you for your grace and mercy to each of us. And we offer our prayers in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ one who gave his life for the world, and the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Following the scripture reading, children may be dismissed for Children's Church and for Junior Church. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships, love, love one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing.
struck as we contemplate your name. We thank you for all you've done for us and for your presence here with us. Be glorified now as we think more about your word and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes church can get ugly. I've seen churches where, situations in churches where, you know, people were yelling at each other and people wouldn't talk to each other. And I read about a, a church that got into a, such a, a fight a few years ago that they had to call the police and uh, two people were stabbed. One person had a head injury being hit by a, with a metal chair. I got to tell you, I've not had that kind of uh, experience. But sometimes church can get ugly. I mean, we wish that it wouldn't, and there's something in us that wants to think it shouldn't happen because it's church. You know, I mean, we're better than that, right? But the reality is we're all human beings and human beings are fallible and human beings make mistakes and we hurt each other and and we bring all of our stuff to church. And where you have human beings, you have problems. And the church is no exception, even if we would like for it to be. And that's been going on a long, long time. God's people have been struggling and fighting and wrestling with each other Well, since God's people became God's people. And when we come to the book of Philippians, we find that something is happening in the church of Philippi. Paul does not tell us what it is, but in this second chapter, he addresses the issue of them not getting along with each other. They're fighting, they're struggling. And Paul says, Almost you get a sense he stops his letter for what he's writing about and interjects this into it and says, we've got got to fix this. And what's his solution? Well, he starts his second chapter by saying, "If, if Christ means anything to you, if I mean anything to you, get along with each other. Stop doing this. And when you come to verses three and four, he writes... Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. 
So what he, what he seems to be saying is, treat each other right. Now, those are great commands. Those are important. They are really psychology 101, right? I mean, if you want people to, to treat you right, you treat them right. I mean, this is something that, the, this, these commands are something that every good leader would say to his or her people. This is how we're going to operate. This is going to be the way we're going to, we're going to make things happen. We're going to treat each other the right way. And it's good and it's important. And, and we all need to pay attention to that. In essence, Paul is saying, work harder. Try harder. Do better. The problem is, if we just stop there, then it's really a command that anybody, anywhere, in any place could pay attention to. I mean, you go to any civic organization, any place of business, any home, any gathering of people, and, and this is what you would want people to do. But Paul isn't just addressing anyone, he's addressing the church. When I read this, it makes me think about the, the book that came out in the late 80s uh, by Robert Fulgham, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Anybody ever read that book? You see that book? It's kind of a humorous book. Here's what he says we ought to be doing. Here's what, here's what he says we learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. This is great stuff, right? I mean, in a sense, he's got a good point. If the world operated with this, we'd be a whole lot better than we are. The problem is, we wouldn't be the church. Paul's not addressing a civic organization or a business. He's addressing the church. It's not enough for us, for Paul to say, just do, I'm going to give you some advice that anybody in the world can do. Paul says, you need Jesus. That's what, that makes the difference. And when you come to verse 5, he says, as much as that other stuff is important, let me really tell you what the heart, the core of what I want you to do. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's where this is headed. If Jesus means anything to you, if I mean anything to you, if the church means anything to you, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. And what is that mind? Well, he says, beginning in verse 6, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? It's talking about humility, self-emptying, selflessness. I, I like the way the New Living Translation says it. He didn't think of his equality with God as something to cling to can't imagine all the moments in Jesus' life when things were happening to him and he had the opportunity to say, wait a minute, time out. I'm God. That's not going to happen. You're not going to treat me like that. This is not going to take place. I am going to claim my right as God. And he doesn't. If Jesus is a human being and struggles with human things like you and I do, you know he had to go through that kind of temptation. Because you and I go through that kind of temptation all the time, right? We get in situations, I want people to know I'm right. I want people to know that I'm smart. I want people to know that I'm on top of this. I want people to see how valuable I am. I am not going to let that happen to me. I'm going to step in and I'm going to prevent that. It is basic human nature. To grasp for what is ours. And Paul is saying, if you're going to be the church, 
Somehow you have to find a way to have the mind of Christ, and that is to let it go. To be selfless, humble, self-emptying, risk-taking. I think what he's telling us is that to be a follower of Jesus means to live your life on a trajectory to the cross. The decisions we make, the way we interact with each other, all of it's done in a life trajectory that if followed through to its logical conclusion would lead us to a cross. This is not something that's special for certain people. This is not something that, if you're really a hardcore believer, then this is for you. This is really the definition of what it means to be a Christ follower. I mean, Paul is only saying what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, if you refuse to deny yourself, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, then you are not worthy of being mine. He turns it just a little bit in Matthew chapter 16, and he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, if you want to be my follower, not a special follower, but if you want to be my follower, then you turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. I think Jesus is saying, this is the definition of what it means to be my follower. It seems to me that that might have... It might cause us to think about how we describe being a Christian. I was just reading something recently that someone said, you know, this person, a family member that I care deeply about, uh, the last of my family members prayed to receive Christ, and so now I I can take a deep breath. And I get what they're saying, and I understand that, and and I applaud that. But there's something about the way we think about that that implies They're done. That being a Christ follower means I've said a prayer and now I can just go with my life. And when I read the Gospels and when I listen to hear what Paul is saying and the Scriptures as a whole from beginning to end, what I hear Scripture telling us is to be a Christ follower means, yes, you you, some kind of, of repentance, some kind of turning to God, but there is a mindset that says, I recognize that if I'm going to be a true Christ follower, then the trajectory of my life is toward the cross. It's not enough to say, I did something here. It's I did something here that turned me so that the rest of my existence is moving me toward a cross. It's the definition of being a Christ follower. I got to be honest with you. I don't want that to be the case. Reading through and studying this passage has, has kind of, in one sense, when I, the first day I was working on this, I, it was heavy. Because as the more I thought about it and the more I looked into it and the more I read it, the more I realized this is the natural life of someone who follows Jesus. And I don't want it to be the natural life. I want to look for loopholes, right? I want to look for another way. I want Jesus to say, well, you know, that was for the Philippians, but that's not really applied to you. Jesus was a special case. You know, Jesus lived his life toward the cross, but you guys don't need to do that. We'll we'll find another plan. I mean, that's what I want him to say. But Paul won't let me get away with that. Paul says, if you want to be the church as God designed the church, then you have the same mind as Jesus. And the mind of Jesus is living a life that is on a trajectory to a cross. And that's our calling. It's all about relationships. 
Often when I've read this passage, I've thought to myself, well, it means that I I surrender to God, I give up something for God, I I sacrifice for God, I go be a missionary for God, or I, I do something that's related to my relationship with God. Purely vertical. But the whole context of what Paul writes here is horizontal. It's all in the context of how we live together as the church. How we relate to each other. It's all about relationships. And that means it's not just surrendering, sacrificing, being selfless toward God. It's living that life toward each other. In some ways, I find that much more challenging. Because again, I want people to see that how valuable I am. And I want people to do what I want them to do. And I want things to move in a direction that I want it to move in. And all of that may happen. But what's my spirit as we're working through it? As we're connecting with each other, as we're relating to each other, as we're being the church. And I don't think it happens typically in these extraordinary moments. I think it's the day-by-day common moments of life. Fred Craddock says that a lot of times we think of surrendering our life to Christ. It's like we we take a $1,000 bill and we lay it at his feet and we say, okay, here's my life. And he says, I think what God typically does is he sends us back to the bank to fill up our pockets with a quarter, with $1,000 worth of quarters. And we live our lives Spending those quarters, 25 cents here, 50 cents there, 75 cents there. Things like how we, how we treat each other in a committee meeting. Or how we react to children who maybe aren't doing what we want them to do. We're just paying attention to them. Or how we serve one another. How patient we are with one another. How we interact with each other. Most of the time, the surrender of our lives is in those common, everyday moments of relationship. Because that's often where our attitude is proven. If you're like me, there's a certain level of pushback I want to make here. Yeah, but shouldn't we stand up for our rights? Shouldn't we stand up for for what is right? Shouldn't Shouldn't we stand up... For, for God in our culture, in our world, and even in the church? Yes. As long as we do it with the attitude and the mind of Jesus. And I think most of the time that will mean standing up for the rights of people who can't stand up for their own rights as opposed to standing up for rights in a way that makes our lives easier. And there are only a few times when Jesus stands up. And every time, it gets him into big trouble. You know, when he heals on the Sabbath, it's one of the things that begins the wheels turning of people saying, we've got to do something about him. And you get to the Passion Week and he clears out the temple. It's the last straw for the religious leaders to say, okay, we've got to take him out. Never do you see Jesus standing up to say, okay, if I do this, it's going to make my life easier. And I am sure he has thousands of opportunities to do that. Just think about the last week of his life, the last 24 hours of his life. Every moment, moment after moment after moment is an opportunity for him to say, wait a minute, I'm God. That's not going to happen. Okay, I'm going to let you arrest me, but that's it. All right, I'll let you beat me, but that's it. You can hang me on the cross, but that's it. Maybe the worst temptation, the hardest temptation, is while he's hanging on the cross and listening to these hypocritical, evil religious leaders mocking him. If you're really the son of God, let's see it. Show us. If Jesus is fully human, as Scripture tells us, then... I think I at least have some sense of how I would react to that. And I think that same temptation is in Jesus. One of those moments 
where the temptation is so strong to say, okay, I'll come down and show you. And he doesn't. I think that, I think that this is, this is how we were created to be. Because Jesus is, Scripture tells us, Jesus is the perfect image of God. And in Genesis chapter 1, the writer tells us that God said, let us make human beings in our own image. And scholars have debated through the centuries of what exactly that means. What of the image of God do we bear? I think one of the things about the image of God that we bear is this mindset of Jesus. Selflessness, humility, self-emptying, risk-taking. I think that's the nature of who God is. I think that's how we were created. And the fact that that is hard for us to really grasp and accept just tells us how much our sinful natures have infiltrated our ability to think about those things. Because the opposite of what Paul is describing here is not Christ. It's not the things of God. The opposite of everything he describes about Jesus is arrogance and self-centeredness and grasping and clutching. And that's nothing like God. I think when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what we're praying is, Lord, the heaven. In heaven, this is how we're all going to relate to each other. This is why heaven is going to be the kind of place that it is. is because we are all going to react and relate to each other in the mindset of who Christ is. And what we're praying is, Lord, help that to be happening now in us. I think that's why Lewis says that in the great divorce, there are, there are people for whom heaven offers nothing that they want. Because they don't want selflessness. They don't want self-emptying. They don't want humility. They want all of the opposites of that. Which tells me that's the nature and the character of what heaven is. And what God has created us to be. And what God desires us to be now. I think this is part of what Paul is saying in the verses 9 to 11. He talks about Jesus being exalted. We're getting a glimpse here of what things are going to be like on that day. Jesus is the king. What I, think, what I know I have always missed is that there was something in my mind that said, well, Jesus was the king, and then he came to earth, and he did all of this stuff, and then he, gave, he left that here, and then he went back to heaven and resumed what he was doing that was different than what he did here. I don't think that's the case. I think that what we see of Jesus is who he is. It's his eternal existence, because it is the existence of what God wants for his people, and God wants for his people to be like him. This is who Jesus always has been. I think maybe the difference between verses 6 to 8 and verses 9 to 11 is that in verses 6 to 8, we see what it looks like to live a life on a trajectory to a cross in the midst of evil and all the power that evil has to oppose it. And in verses 9 to 11, we see what it looks like when the evil is no longer present. And you're able to live this way without that kind of opposition. And what's interesting to me is that when you read through the scriptures, when God calls out his people, he says, not only am I the king, but I want you to be my priests in my kingdom. Exodus 19, 1 Peter 2, Revelation 1, Revelation 5. He keeps repeating this over and over again. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want you to look like me. I want you to reflect the nature of who I am and my kingdom. And Paul says, this is what it looks like. 
And I think the, the journey to living a life on a trajectory to a cross is moving us from doing this because we have to, because it's the right thing to do, to living it in a spirit of joy. That we come to see that there is, there is deep joy in selflessness and humility and self-emptying. In being like Jesus. I just think it's fascinating that the, Paul writes these words in a letter that is predominantly a call to be joyful. Over and over again, he says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And this is placed right in the middle of that. That in the mind of Jesus, it's not drudgery. It's not, he doesn't come to earth because he has to, he's forced to. He comes out of a spirit of love and joy and doing what he wants to do. And I think that is a part of our journey of coming to that place. During the season of Lent, we think a lot, talk a lot about the cross. And I think most of the time, and rightly so, we're thinking about what the cross means for us. You know, we, we, give, we give thanks to God for the cross. That it is the means of salvation for us, the means of cleansing, the means of freedom. And, and we thank God for the cross. In my mind this week, the song's been going through my mind. Thank you for the cross, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. I just keep, that song just keeps going through my mind this week and, and my heart is filled with gratitude to God and, uh, and for the cross. But in the midst of that gratitude, there is also a sense of calling. That because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we hear that call to follow Jesus. To make the choice to trust God that the best way to live is to focus our lives on a trajectory that moves us toward the cross. When that begins to happen, we become the church that makes a difference to each other and makes a difference to others because we become a church that begins to really look like Jesus Heavenly Father I want to thank you for the cross for all that it means for our lives and our world and Lord we also want to acknowledge that we hear your call to make decisions, to relate to each other, to live our lives in such a way that our lives are on a trajectory to a cross. Open our eyes to see the joy this kind of Christ-following living. His name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing together.
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.